I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Christine Leziak is an Edmonton-based theatre artist, teacher, director, clown, and artistic director of Small Matters Productions. She joined me to talk about coming to theatre and clown through science, being a fringe mainstay, and her passion for immersive and site-specific work. Here's our conversation. Christine, thank you uh, for joining me. Just to get started, um, a lot of the people that I, I speak to on this podcast, they've been in theater or interested in theater since childhood. Now, that's not the case with you. You were not a theater kid. I was you were, not. You were a science kid. So, how did a science kid find their way to theater? Well, I mean, arguably, I was a theater kid who didn't know they were a theater kid because where I grew up in New Brunswick and Fredericton at the time, there just wasn't much opportunity for that. Right. So uh, in retrospect, I think I always was a theater kid. Um, but that's not something I ever really acted upon in any kind of serious way until I became an adult. Um, and I was able to do science and I came from a background of a mom who was in pre-med herself in school. So I just mm -hmm. did like the family culture of, yes, you should go into science. So that's what I did. And it was great. I really enjoyed it. I got a physics degree at the University of New Brunswick and moved out here to Alberta to go to school at the University of Alberta for graduate studies in physics. And I mean, it was fine, but I discovered that really a physics is a calling <laughs> It is. Um, I was fine, but I wasn't great at it, and I didn't love it. So I didn't really see the point mm -hmm. for me personally. See, that's an important distinction because I know I, I, we all know somebody who didn't love what they did, but they spent so much money on it, so they stuck with it. And then many, many years later, they're very miserable. But because they did the whole, like, I went to university for this thing. They stuck with it, which is never really a good choice. So um, 
how did you come to the realization that that you were going to do this theater clowny thing uh, rather than science? Well, I left. Um, the thing about physics is um, much like the arts, you have to be super passionate about it to go anywhere and be you know, develop a career, be any good at it. Um, um, so without that passion and drive, I didn't really see it. It's not like an engineering degree or um, a doctor becoming a doctor or MD or anything. Is You don't automatically fall into a job. You have to work really, really hard to craft a spot for your self in that field and I just did not so I ended up um uh stopping like leaving that doing a few other things in the meantime had babies that was a great time in my life to have kids I'd been married a few years at that point and then in my early 30s when my kids got a little bit older old enough to leave the house on occasion I just uh, I needed to do something and I've always been interested in performing you know I've been doing some a little bit of singing lessons and attempting to learn guitar, which I never did very, very bad. And I decided to take an improv class here in Edmonton with Rapid Fire Theater, a very well-known improv company. And I realized, oh my God, this is this is the dream. I love, I'm, I'm a performer. And I realized all that historically, everything I've always done has kind of taken me there. And then, um, then I discovered Clown through studying with Jan Henderson. And that's like, ah, this is the thing. It's the elements I love from improv, the spontaneity, the presence, the being in the moment, the not knowing, the authentic reaction in the moment without, um, but with more structure. So I could, you could tell deeper stories. You could have more of an arc. You could rehearse something that you knew the, the bones of it were very solid, but then when it hit the stage, be something that lived in a, different place than a lot of other standard forms of theater for me and also the physical element of it i really liked yeah yeah i mean clown gives you the freedom to interact with an audience in the way that sketch doesn't um or or in most forms of theater because you have to stick with with you know your script but a a clown is allowed to react and to you know if somebody in the audience has a weird laugh you can react to that in a way that you really can't if you're doing a play yeah, exactly. Um, and I love it. I love the constant surprise. I get bored easily. So I love being in shows where I never exactly know what's going to happen. I mean, arguably, one could say one never knows exactly what's going to happen in any live performance. But let's be honest. In some, you know more than others. That's very true. That's very true. Now, you've managed to combine um, clown and theater and science in it. I think, have you always done that or is that a relatively recent thing that you've, you've done shows like for science and the space between stars? Like how, when did that come about for you? I think it really became integrated around 2015. Um, I went back to school and did my MFA in theater practice at the university of Alberta. And part of what I was really interested and looking at as a part of my own personal journey at that time was integrating what felt like different elements of myself. I had my theater clowning self. I had my history as a scientist and being still a science nerd self. And then I had my being a mom, a parent self. And I felt like these were disparate forms, separate elements of my life. And I wondered, I was really curious about how to integrate that. So I spent a lot of time doing that. 
thematically, I would say, during my master's degree, which is kind of the thing that produced the this work. I think it's just acknowledging that in my heart, I am still the nerd in the lab to a certain extent. And take that practice, that philosophy, and put that into my art. I also really wanted to speak to that audience of people who are practicing scientists, who love it and respect it, but who also love art, because I know so many people who are like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of of the, the, you were talking about this 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 last that that last uh, uh, study that you were doing. Um, as far as the intersection of clown, the, all of that sort of stuff, like how does how do you see the similarity between, say, what we would consider two separate things of clown and theater, even though they're very closely related, um, in terms of, of 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 putting those together? How do you create? Uh, how do you think of those as as similar yet different? Clown and theater, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tricky question, isn't it? I, um, for me, it's about the liveness of the moment. It's about the ability to, to react in real time to what is happening in the room. I do do what we call sort of more traditional fourth wall theater at times. Um, but even then, the use of the clown technique of being in the moment, I think, is just good acting as well. Mm. I would say that with my mentor, Jan Henderson, one of the things that she would say is that with the clown, the emotion is never legislated. You feel what you feel on the night authentically, and that is it. And if in a, in a play, obviously, you're likely to be sad in a moment or happy in a moment or joyful in a moment, but you can't really ever, but never attempt to fake the emotion. Um, so for me, that's a bit different. I think there's a lot of blurred lines between it. It's it's a hard it's a hard thing to say. I would say in terms of style, though, I have come to believe that um, clowning is a pattern of behavior rather than an aesthetic, and that is what I now teach personally. So the clown behaves in a certain way, whether or not they're wearing a nose or not wearing a nose, whether they're speaking or they're not speaking, and that pattern of behavior is one of discovery and wonder and constant surprise and finding novel solutions to things um, and being present with the audience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the interesting things about it is that to me, there's a, so much freedom in being in a clown, like to 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 discover, to 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 even just like see the audience in a way that you that you don't which in a theatrical experience can be a terrifying thing to do is to, 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 you know, see the audience and to, to really take them in, which in a lot of cases, a uh, theater artists don't always enjoy because it's, it, it's like, you're going to look somebody in the face and they're going to like, I don't know, not be enjoying themselves or something, but it's like the, that, that risk of like, of, of, of seeing them and taking them in. It's, it's terrifying. And yet also, uh, so exciting and beautiful. Absolutely. For so, for me, that's where a lot of the risk lies is in putting a thing out that you don't know what the thing is. And the thing is, the audience will always tell you what the thing is. Mm -hmm. You can think you know what you're doing, but you will not know until they tell you. 
and the, the, the act of audience listening, no matter what kind of theater you're doing, because most plays will have a laugh here or there. You need to learn to be able to hear that and listen to that mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and and take that on board. Um, super interesting what you say about the um, what happens when you see your audience. Because for me, when I see an audience for the first time in a show with a lot of text, I will forget my work. Like a my head because I am now so interested in being with them that I will forget and I'm so in that particular moment that I am not thinking about the next moment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for me it takes extra uh, extra rehearsal time with audience in order to be able to live that moment and be the, with them at the same time. When I was uh, creating my solo show, The Commandment, my director, Richard Bones, said to me, well, of course, you're going to like make eye contact with audience members as you're performing this. They're your scene partner. And he said that, and I had never considered the idea of that I would have to actually you know, talk to people. But he was right, but it was terrifying. And the first, I will admit that the first time I performed that show in front of an audience, I did not make eye contact. I faked it. I like looked between people. But... That's because I was too terrified. But eventually I was able to to do it. And it's still terrifying, but it's also so like bringing them into this thing I'm going to do and this thing we're going to, this journey we're going to go through together. And it's often then that I decide, okay, so you, I'm going to tell this story too. And you, oh, you're going to get this part. Like, it's like you see who's reacting to you in that sort of way. One of the things that, that I found interesting in, in what you were saying just a second ago, though, was about how you don't know what something is until the audience tells you. Yeah. I, I remember performing uh, when, when I was working with, with Keystone Theater, we performed these plays that are in silent film. We're doing, say, The Last Man on Earth. And people would come up to us as, afterwards and they would tell us their favorite moments. They would tell us what they thought the play was about. And at the beginning of our tour, we used to be like, no, 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 that's not what was happening. But after a while, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. Tell me what you think was happening. Because I, everybody gets something different out of it. And so I want to know what your experience of this show was. It was so exciting to learn what what this audience and these people thought we were doing and what was behind it. Because they all filled it in. And for them, they were right. And that's really what mattered. That is the magic, I think, of a well-crafted show is different people will interpret it differently. And no one's wrong. One person once told me, the last person to know anything about the play is the playwright. And certainly in this last show I did, The Space Between Stars, which I started writing in 2016, mm. and finally went up, um, you know, we just closed it a little over a week ago, I went from playwright to actor. And that, I'm all of a sudden, I'm like, what the hell did I mean when I wrote this? Like, what an <laughs> asshole line to write. And this is after having revised it, I don't know how many times. And once again, the audience ultimately told us what it was. Um, Certainly our show for science, which is if you go to my website, smallmatters.ca, you can find some clips of it. It's a nonverbal clown show where we get a lot of audience members on stage to do very silly experiments. Uh, When we first opened that in 2018... Uh, it was such a radical experiment. I told my performing partner, um, we were just opening at the Edmonton Fringe, this could be the longest 10 days of our lives. They might hate us. Mm. This mm-hmm. could be a total train wreck of a run. Fortunately, 
that was not the case. It did incredibly well, and we've been able to do it a few times, uh, uh, quite a few runs ever since. But again, you have to just trust that they will tell you what the thing is, especially if it's something novel that's never been done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I I found every show that I've ever created, the first time an audience sees it, I don't know. Like, I think I know what they're going to do, but like when we would do the Keystone stuff, um, you know, we would be laughing in the rehearsal hall, but we also know that once an audience, like we're laughing, but will an audience find this funny? And so we would, if we weren't on stage at the beginning, there'd always be this, like this tension the first time you perform it, like, okay, this is where we think the first laugh is. Is that, is it actually going to happen? And then they would do it and you'd be like, okay, oh, we were right. We're not dead for the next like 10 days or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I know that so well. I, uh, <laughs> and also great shows, those Keystone shows. Love those shows. So beautifully crafted. Um, would love to see them again. Just saying. Uh, we would love to do them again. Yes. But. I'll bet. I'll bet. But your people are a bit scattered now. I I know. We have scattered to the wind. <laughs> Our piano player, for example, is now conducting ha- the tour of Hamilton. So. Well, uh, come I mean, on. I mean, he's a little Real busy. Real job. I mean, on. yeah, I know. <laughs> come on. Come on. Really? Hamilton? As if that's going to be a thing? Never heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> I um, but to build on what you were just saying, I think that is the part that so excites me about theater is is the not knowing, and also you learn so much about your audiences once you've done a show about where that first laugh comes. Like I don't know if you've had that experience of of going, okay, this is where the first laugh usually happens. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. It's okay. They're a little bit yeah. quiet. This is where the second laugh usually happens. Oh no, that didn't happen either. Uh oh, mm-hmm. gonna be a long one. Yeah, I mean, the, I've had shows where we were so certain where the laughs were that uh, it just wasn't funny for the audience. Like we were like set. It was almost like we were setting it up and like, <laughs> and then nobody would laugh. Yeah. And it that was like our opening night where nobody laughed. And then after was we were like, okay, so we have to forget about laughter. We have to forget about it. Because we let them figure it out. And, you know, similarly with Keystone stuff, sometimes because we were silent, the audience would forget that they didn't have to be silent. And so sometimes it would take a while for them to start to laugh because we weren't saying anything. So we were like, <laughs> like really tiny laughs, if at all. But if you could see them, they were smiling. It's just you had to have some way of teaching them that it was okay because they react to how what you're doing on stage so intensely. Absolutely. Absolutely. We certainly found that in our show for science, because although we don't speak, there are some tasks that are cooperative for audience members. And it's really interesting to see during a show whether or not they figure out they're allowed to talk or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like we would have audiences that didn't know they were allowed to laugh. I think there are shows like, you know, you can look at something like Blue Man Group when they don't talk, but they have an announcer that in some ways, in, you know, they have the announcer sort of lets the audience know that it's okay to make noise because there's some talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you need something, I think, sometimes to, to let people know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, you absolutely have to teach your audience what the expectations are, especially if you're doing something unusual. We see this all the time in site-specific and immersive work. Mm-hmm. You're renegotiating the rules of engagement for your audience. You have to, you have to take responsibility for teaching them. Yeah. I want to talk about about site specific and immersive work, especially the immersive work. Um, wh- 
what draws you? I mean, I know I'm fascinated by the, I've heard about like sleep no more in New York. I haven't been able to see it yet and things like that, but like being able to construct something in a space and, and to sort of like throw an audience into the middle of it is really an exciting prospect. Um, for you, what, what draws you to immersive theater and, 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 and how do you, how does it inform what you do? I I get bored easily, so I love, for me, it's an extension of the clown work. You get audience in a space and you don't know exactly what they're going to do, so it's a, it forces me to be incredibly present in that moment. It's fun. For me, it's fun. And to give people, offer them an experience that is different from the ordinary and to go with them on that journey in a way where they are maybe not affecting the actual action of the play or the piece, but they are affecting the mood and the motion and the movement of what's happening. They are affecting it on a really, uh, on some kind of level, uh, more so than one can with a seated audience. So I find that mm. super interesting. Um, it's one of the things I studied in my master's degree was really the application of clown technique to immersive experiences and it really again it comes all down to the listening it's all the clown technique it's funny about listening isn't it i mean i remember almost in every show i've ever done there's a reminder from the director you're not listening to each other you think that you're like going at it and then you're you're not it doesn't work because you're not listening and listening for in clown you have to listen to the audience to your partner if there is one to everything and i think that that by studying clown you can get a greater appreciation and a little it, may, it becomes a little easier to drop into listening both to your scene partner and to the audience in a way that that is really necessary mm -hmm. i agree and improv training is also really good for that i think what i like about clown training is it takes the pressure a weirdly takes the pressure of being funny off for me because mm. you don't have to be witty. So the pressure to be witty often comes in improv, or at least we put it on ourselves, even if you're with an instructor who's not interested in that. The great Keith Johnstone, who just passed away last week, actually, once wrote, said, I don't, I've heard him say anyway, just be more boring. Just be more boring. Uh, another brilliant clown instructor once said, be interested, not interesting. Hmm. That's really fascinating because I think that shows like Saturday Night Live, uh, Kids in the Hall, although sometimes they're weird enough to not necessarily be funny, but just weird. Um, they get it into your head that, that you have to be funny. And even a show like Whose Line Is It Anywhere, which is a, a big... Uh, entryway for some people to learn about what improv might look like that pressure to be funny is something that i think comes in and it is an intimidating thing for a lot of people absolutely to go into it because they're thinking i'm not funny how can i do this when it doesn't have to be well and also i think we are funny when we're being ourselves and that is that is the clown like we are mm. we are all funny when we just be and express who we are. Now, that isn't to say that I don't write jokes into my work. I do that all the time. But the joke is in the text, or at least I hope it is, whereas most of the laughs actually come from the behavior. Right. 
this yeah. show I did, The Space Between Stars, is actually it's it's very it's quite sad and dramatic. It's it's definitely not a comedy, but at the top of the show, I'd get tons of laughs because I was this quirky clown character who just got super excited about science in a nerdy way, and it was just mm. she was funny. She wasn't saying anything funny, but she was. And I think that's where, that's how we fall in love with characters. That's how we fall in love with um, personalities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier about, about having written a show and then turning into an actor was about how, uh, 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 like, learning the lines and, like, dealing with, like, what you wrote. Yeah. Um, I, when I, again, when I wrote The Commandment, I thought this is going to be so easy to to learn because I wrote it, right? <laughs> uh, it's going to be such a breeze. Uh -huh. I feel like every time I come back to it, I'm all over again. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to learn this because I don't, I, I yes, it, I, different parts of the brain. I don't, I don't know who, who is this person who wrote this thing? Yeah. And like, how can I say these lines so hard? Because I don't think it's intuitive that you write from one part of the brain and you learn the lines from another part of the brain and they don't connect as well as you think. They do not. They absolutely do not. And I, I saw the commandment when Richard did it here at the Edmonton Fringe last year. It's great play. Congratulations. Thank you. Just, Thank you so much. Just wonderful. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, exactly. You'd think. People say that to me all the time. Well, you wrote it. How hard can it be? I'm like, you would be surprised. The other thing is, yeah. as the writer, you're constantly editing and changing all the words all the time. So it's mm -hmm. like, what version am I do, supposed to be doing now? On the plus side, you don't usually piss off the playwright when you change something or make a mistake. See, that is that is 100% the plus side because, I mean, I, I've tried every time I've done it. I don't revise while I'm an actor. Mostly. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, sometimes near the beginning, I'll be like, no, I don't like this anymore. Things like that. Yeah. But. When I'm fully in actor mode, I don't revise. But afterwards, I do. And I have added in performance, which is bad, but also playwright's not going to Yeah, it's mine. Also, I'm a person who usually develops my stuff in front of an audience. So if it's not being tweaked because mm -hmm. of the audience reaction, I, I just did some edits to the show we just closed. And little ones, nothing big. But I'm like, this word does not belong here. These two are mm -hmm. in the wrong order. This needs another beat here. I need to give the other boy character like just a tiny line in this moment and or just because you don't know the rhythms until you're doing yeah. it. Well, the audience teaches you so much about the thing that you're performing. Yeah. Like it's like we were just saying, like not just about like what is the play about, but like how do these relationships work? You you learn so much from the audience that it would be foolish to not finish a run and then frantically like okay what are the things that i learned from this audience and how can that improve this show mm -hmm. i think it's one of the places we tend to fall down in terms of creating new work in canada we don't really allow ourselves the time to do the process the way it needs to mm -hmm. be done and there's a lot of you know workshopping of a play with actors various actors for a long time and that's amazing uh, i got to enjoy some of that process as a playwright um but at the end of the day you need that first run to know what the thing is so that's that's so true. But in, in so many cases, the plays that we create in Canada don't get another. Run. Exactly. Exactly. We we're so disposable with the theater that we create. We'll throw money at it to create it, to workshop it, to do it. And then we perform it once. And then if you're lucky, 20 years later, there might be a revival in the theater somewhere. But it almost never gets done again. 
with a couple of notable exceptions. But for the most part, we never see them again. And I think that's really a, a I think it's really sad for our theater. Yeah. And when part of that is the way we develop, we tend to do small scale. Part of that is um, the, uh, I love fringe. Fringe is a very important part of our experimental ecosystem in mm-hmm. the, in Canada, I think. I think much of the work that I have produced and where it has evolved to more of a soft cedar um, creation process. It would not exist without the Fringe Network. But what it does, though, is it makes you think in a very small scale. So we, in Canada, we have a real issue with creating anything with scale, with you know larger casts or a larger vision or anything experimental or anything that really tries to innovate or innovate on a form. I think that's a very difficult for, thing for, almost impossible for an indie independent theater creator to do. Absolutely. And also a lot, most of the theater companies are not looking for plays that are, are large or things like that. No so, one can afford them. No. So the plays that, that, that get done at Fringe and then go on or they go on because a theater can afford it. They're not, exactly. they're not going to put money into a big cast, except unless they're one of the massive festivals. That sure. Of course. Yeah. Those can do a big cast, but they're rare and they have million dollar budgets, which uh, smaller theaters, especially indie theaters don't. Yeah, Exactly. Um, tell me about this horror show you've been working <laughs> on. I I feel like like genre is is something that is so often ignored in our theater landscape, mm-hmm. especially in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't touch it very often. And there are some theaters that that are popping up and they're doing horror, they're doing sci-fi, they're doing some weird, some good meeting weird stuff. But it's indie theaters, and it's it. It, we just don't see it as, I think, viable very often. So I like the idea that there's this horror play that you're working on. So tell me about that. So Dead Center of Town has been going for 13 years now. It is an annual site-specific horror show based on Edmonton's true history, um, produced and created by Catch the Keys Productions, who are Beth and Megan Dart. Uh, Megan writes the plays based on Edmonton's history, Beth Dart directs them. I have cut my teeth on immersive theater and audience movement and understanding flow and um, site specificity on this show because it's, uh, it's, I think, year 11 for me now. Um, it is draws a completely different audience from theater. So right now that we have a partnership with uh, Fort Edmonton Park, which is a historical park, and so we will for uh, you know we'll do like 20-ish nights of performance which is pretty good small audiences usually you know 50-ish 30 to 70 depends on the year on the space it's a new show new space every year Uh, what's fascinating about it is they are very interested generally in hiring people with clown training because they know those are the people who can guide the audience through the experience in a way that's going to be satisfying. They know how to communicate non-verbally. They know how to move people. It's very campy. And we like to say, I think Beth said this once, we are the, um, we trick people into coming to see theater. They think they're going to a haunted house. <laughs> Surprise, you're in a theater show. And it does melt people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
one of the the theater companies in Toronto that does does horror stuff. They combine puppets and magic and horror and create these beautifully weird shows, Eldritch Theater. But they're they have a very strong core audience, none of whom are regular theater goers. Mm, yeah, I would say it's very similar. Yeah, and it's fascinating to see that like by 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 delving into some genre, mm-hmm. you can bring in people that normally don't go to theater, and yet. The bigger theaters rarely touch it and are still having that that whole like, where is our audience going? What's the why is where's the audience? How do we get a bigger audience? And it's kind of like you could be willing to get a little weird now and then and maybe the audience will come in. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question, isn't it? Because every theater company kind of has the thing they do and the people that go see their shows and buy their season tickets like the thing they do. And I've seen it happen where theater companies are like, I'm going to take a bold choice. I'm going to program this show and I'm going to program this show. And those shows were brilliant, but Mm -hmm. their core audience was confused and did not understand Mm -hmm. what was happening. So they are now scared of programming anything like that, especially post-pandemic as we try to recover. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Because there is the hunger there. But the thing is, you have to commit to it for a period of time so people can find out about you, right? It's almost like a brand building thing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can understand why theaters are, are, especially theaters that rely on, say, subscriptions, for example. They both want to bring in a new audience, but they don't want to alienate their subscriber audience, which means there's this this pull between those two things where... They don't want to do something their subscribers don't want to see, but they also need to bring in the people who don't normally go. Um, there have been a couple of theaters that have done. I remember years ago when Canadian Stage did uh, the Rocky Horror Show. And of course, every every theater that does like the Rocky Horror Show ends up like bringing down the house. They make more money than they've ever made before because everybody, all the all the Rocky Horror people come out. But they would have signs in the lobby for the subscribers saying, this is not your usual show. Please uh, don't get upset if people yell at the actors if they happen to bring some props. This is all part of it. And 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 just sort of like this whole like, like it's okay if people are doing something weird, but the, the subscribers were uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's not something you do very often, which mm-hmm. I think it, it it's it's limiting. But I understand it because if you rely on the subscribers, you can't piss them off. I think it's a very challenging place because we train our audiences with what to expect. And um, I don't know how well if we train our audience as well, honestly. Mm-hmm. Now, with Dead Center of Town, because it's such a weird format, in the first couple of years we were doing it in this new venue, we would have some bizarre things happening with audience members. But now that our audience has found us, our job is quite easy because they kind of know the rules of the world already, most of them. We usually can tell whether or not there's a crowd with a bunch of people we call, we refer to fresh fish, newbies are fresh fish or old fish who are the people who've seen the show before. And they, because it's the same characters, I play one of the characters that moves audience, um, one of the reoccurring ones. Most of the characters don't reoccur. They People get to know me and they're like, oh, when I see this character, Alice, I know at some point she's going to tell me to go there and I'm just going to go and I'm not going to worry about it. I will do what she says. So it's a question of, what expectations are we building in our audiences and what are they and 
I think when they begin to trust us, we can begin to incrementally take them on different rides. And that's true, of course, within the confines of a clown show. If you think of a clown show, you start off in a really um, specific way, you know, usually a little bit of distance between you and the audience, you let the audience come to you. But by the end of the show, you can have them doing all sorts of crazy things if you build it properly. I remember years ago at the Toronto Fringe seeing uh, or hearing, I never saw it because it was sold out. It was uh, Red Bastard mm, yep. doing doing their show. And I remember somebody at the, the Fringe tent afterwards raving about the fact that at some point he was standing over her shouting, sing in my mouth with his mouth like wide over and and how she was just so excited to be like, shouting into his mouth mm -hmm. which is such a weird thing to ask an audience member to do but again clown can get people to do strange things mm -hmm. with joy mm -hmm. with complete joy and abandon it invites you to play and that's i think um something we miss a lot as adults is the ability absolutely. to play absolutely i remember you know when you see a show I know a lot of times the show will say audience participation and there's a certain kind of person who's like, no, I don't want to do audience participation. I'm not going to that show because they think it's going to be like you in the middle who doesn't want to be seen. Come up here. And then they're forced to do a thing. And yet I remember one of the, uh, do you remember the show Little Orange Man? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that show at the end had audience participation. I've never seen any, an audience clamor so hard to be part of this moment near the end of the show, but it was so earned. Mm -hmm. that people just wanted to be part of it. Mm -hmm. I think that that earning the participation is something you have to do. And I think clowns do that. And Ingrid did that mm -hmm. with that show um, just to make people want to participate yeah. uh, and to bring them in in a way that that that, that puts them in a, a, a position where they, they, it's something they want to do. That's just it. It's about issuing the invitation in a way that people will respond with enthusiastic consent. And I have seen a lot of clown that doesn't do that. And I think mm. that's where we get our bad reputation sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how well we educate sometimes our, our performers on audience interaction. I've certainly had people, instructors, who I otherwise respect to say things like, well, you know, see what you can get away with. I'm like, mm. I, you know, maybe not. And that part of that is, you know, being a person... Uh, female identified in a female body and just mm -hmm. I, I've been in uncomfortable situations I've seen very uncomfortable situations where the status of the performer allows them to manipulate a situation to their own advantage and I'm not sure we always train our people well but to that point when we do train our people well it can create euphoria in the room. Yeah. A sense of joy and wonder unparalleled to any kind of art form. Yeah. I wonder about that in terms of the training, because all the, any of the training that I've ever participated in for clown was all about the performance of the clown, like the creating the clown and doing the clown and doing the thing, but never about how to create something that, that brings an audience in. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that I don't know if maybe there are, are classes and courses that do that, or if that's something that is just is depending on the teacher is omitted entirely. I, I'm sh Maybe. I've certainly taught classes on how mm -hmm. to engage with audience because it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, yeah. I had a pre-pandemic, I created a curriculum called uh, Creating um, Amazing Audience Interactions. Um, 
a lot of the stuff I learned, I think I learned from a combination of Michael Kennard and Jen Henderson. Mm -hmm. um, different, a slightly different approaches, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. You want to create that magical circle where they want to come to you. And it's almost by withholding your affection initially that you can create that want. You just can't just see one. You just can't seem needy. If you seem needy, everyone's going to be like, no, 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 no. I think it comes down to, again, that be interested, not interesting. If you are interested yeah. in what they are doing, they will be completely interested in watching you be interested. Who doesn't like to talk about themselves? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, tell me about... Um, and I don't know how much you can talk about the spinsters, um, <laughs> but it's written down here. So I wanted to ask you about it because you've mentioned that it's a interprovincial collaboration. So please tell me about about that because I think interprovincial is not something that we we get to do much in this country. No, we do not. Because I can tell you, I've been working on budgets for a week. It is expensive. Um, I met a brilliant performer, Tara Travis, on the Fringe Circuit many years ago. And we, you, I don't know, you probably know Travis, Tara Travis. Tara, Tara does the, she's the, that, that, uh, the, seven, the wives of Henry VIII. She absolutely, yeah. Worked with Monster Theater, Ryan Gladstone, I believe, mm -hmm. wrote that show probably with her collaboration. And she performed, a, 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 a phenomenal performer. Um, we've been wanting to do a show together forever. So we were um, walking one day after a fringe back in like uh, 2017 or something. And my partner, Ian, who's a brilliant mechanical designer, just imagined us on these giant wheelie dresses. And we're like, what a great image. Tara and I would love to be on giant wheelie dresses. Don't know what to do with that. <laughs> then come 2020, and it's pandemic, but we met up in a cabin in BC and spent some time together just hanging out. And, we, and it occurred to us, wait a minute, what if we were Cinderella's ugly stepsisters? They'd be on wheelie dresses. <laughs> So what is the story, the untold story, of Cinderella's stepsisters? If we meet them in middle age, what would they have to say? Hmm. What dish would they, what dirt would they have to dish? What would they say? What is their POV on what happened back in the day? So that was our launching point. And now we have been working on it now for um, years. We've been through two workshop creation periods or I'm about to go into a third one for a month-long residency at the Burnaby Center for the Arts very generously as an artist-in-residence program um, and I can tell you it is visually spectacular we are incorporating these wheel dress frames with extravagant dress design with drag reveals in it ridiculous wigs it's very Buffon-esque at the top of the show I would say in terms of this really heightened drag Buffon clown characters, Atrocia and Tormentia just being with you, welcoming you to the ball. Um, shadow puppetry. Most of the storytelling is done through shadow puppetry. Some really innovative uses, some classic, some shadow puppets mm. found in sneaky parts of our bodies that I don't want to talk too much about because it's mm. freaking magical. And I can tell you there is a very dark twist that is revealed later in the play. Um... But the team that has been assembled is magical. Our costume designer is one of the designers for the Aritzia brand. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Adam knows Adam knows fashion. Adam Dixon. <laughs> he knows his fashion. Um, it will be 
in the Burnaby Center of the Arts this fall. It's going to be in Edmonton, although I can't say exactly where yet, in January 2024. And I fully expect it to be all over the place. Wow. That's great. That's amazing. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> a lot uh, of people want to see it. A lot of people want sure. to see it. As you're it. describing yeah. it, I'm like, okay, I need to see this on a big stage somewhere. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned, and you mentioned a few times, you mentioned Fringe. Um, and, um, you know, we met on the fringe circuit as we sort of, as we mentioned. We sure did. Um, and I remember, um, uh, when, when we got to Edmonton, I remember, uh, you as both a performer and a person in the arts in, in Edmonton were like this, this amazing ambassador for the fringe. Uh, you were very friendly and warm to all the people who were from out of, out of town. Um, how long were you like, how, how long have you been a fringe participant goer, um, how long have you been involved with Fringe in Edmonton and and like say specifically Edmonton? Um, I think I did my first show in 2008, and I would say I've been involved in some capacity most years ever since. If not doing my own show, directing something, I'm doing more directing now as well. Um, it's it is the largest Fringe in North America. Mm-hmm. It's big. It is mm. very big. It is an amazing training ground. I've been able to do an experiment with things that I otherwise never would be able to do. Yeah. I One of the things that I, I really appreciate, appreciate about the Edmonton Fringe is, unlike certain other fringes, um, it still really celebrates the, 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 the experimentation. Um, although it's an expensive place to fail, it is like you can... As long as you're trying something really wild, you can probably still do all do all right. Um, there's something really uh, uh, intimidating and also super exciting about about that festival being the largest. Um, it's it's such a great training ground for just like both like getting in front of an audience and and also like just getting your feet on the ground and exploring a place and finding out uh, what the audience wants to see, just like, this magical thing. Mm -hmm. And our audiences are very dedicated at the Fringe and very, mm -hmm. they're very sophisticated. Like, you can get away with, get away with, here I'm using my own language, you can really <laughs> experiment with some weird shit and people will find it interesting. Often they'll find it interesting. Mm -hmm. As it grows, it can be sometimes harder to get your show known. But one of the things I do love about it is the um, the artist community. It is so busy. It's so busy. We're so busy during the whole festival. It's mm -hmm. hard to do that. But I do think it's a very welcoming festival. I think that people from out of town have a great time here. Um, Maybe even if they don't, their shows don't always do well. I think, I hope that they feel welcomed and embraced and valued, at least for what they are bringing. I hope. Anyway. It's such an... It's such an interesting because because it is so so large, you don't expect it to be warm. You don't expect it to be as 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 warm as it is. But um, arriving in Edmonton and 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 like sort of meeting people and and there's always somebody who can give you advice like like where the artists hang out. As you, if you're from Toronto, you're like okay, so we go to the Fringe tent, and somebody's like we don't go to the Fringe tent, and they you know somebody will take you where you need to go to find the other artists, and it's. Is this 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 wonderful? Uh, uh, it's this art artistic fellowship that happens for these 10, 14 days, however long it is. That 
that I don't think you find in other places. And also, very specifically, the clown community gets incredibly mm-hmm. tight knit around that time. It's like it's like there's a pilgrimage for all the clowns from Canada and who are doing shows, and some mm-hmm. from the states come together, and we all kind of learn each about each other. It's incredibly important networking experience mm-hmm. and time, I think, mm-hmm. for people practicing that form because it's one of the few places where people who are specifically doing clown theater or something that maybe doesn't look like it but is, actually can do incredibly well because those shows are very difficult to get programmed in a regular season. Mm-hmm. But they do very well at the Fringe. I mean, this is the, the, the thing about Fringe is that, is that it's the opportunity to get something a little weird that might not be programmed at a, at a major theater in front of an audience that can fall in love with it and after that, might be willing to come to see what you do every year after that. Absolutely, I, I have, I would, I, I believe I have developed a little bit of a following now in Edmonton. So, when I do something, people, there are a certain number of people who are very curious about whatever that thing will be. And certainly, without having my time at the fringe, fretting around, figuring things out, try experimenting with new things, constantly trying to surprise myself. And I think that's part of it. I'm trying to surprise myself, which then, of course, surprises other people. Um, Without that, that doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. It's been great to, to chat with you again. It has been a pleasure. And I can't wait to see you out here at the Edmonton Fringe again, doing something, hopefully. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.